Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from different sides of the debate over the United States' role in NATO. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Ivan Eland. He is senior fellow at the Independent Institute and director of the Institute's Center on Peace and Liberty, more at independent.org. First, we talk with James Carafato, senior counselor to the president at the Heritage Foundation and E.W. Richardson Fellow. He is an expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. And you can find more at heritage.org. James, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you. Talking today about the future of NATO and the United States' role in NATO moving forward. As we start, if you could give us an idea, what is the U.S. committed to by being a member of NATO? Sure. Well, NATO is a collective defense treaty, which means that the nations involved uh, have a collective commitment to the defense of their territorial integrity. Uh, This is most famously reflected in what's called Article 5, which is allows the members to declare that an attack against one is an attack against all. This is meant primarily to serve as an instrument of strategic deterrence, which basically means to deter other countries from invading NATO countries. Uh, it, it is both conventional, which means tanks, planes, airplanes, and strategic, which means um, nuclear arms, which the NATO members or the U.S., uh, the UK and France, which have uh, um, nuclear deterrent posture. And it's also worth pointing out that NATO is a political military alliance, which means uh, they take political positions in, in addition, which obviously related to security, but in addition to defense. Now, NATO also does other things. You know, they famously did some out of area missions, like uh, the NATO. Port in, in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, in the invasion of Libya, kind of think, to be honest, that out-of-area missions for NATO are kind of in the past. They also do training missions uh, and and have cooperative dialogues with, with other countries. For example, for a while, we, we had a cooperative dialogue with the Russians, which obviously has gone more abundant. So it reflects uh, the U.S. vital interests. You know, con- conservatives, as we look at foreign policy, tend to assess that in terms of what is in the best interest of the American people because government is formed to support the interests of the people. So in terms of foreign policy, defend, defending us from foreign threats, you know, what what is useful? And so we often talk of NATO as a vital interest in the sense that uh, a secure transatlantic community, peaceful U.S. and Europe, you know, essentially keeps enemies far away from, from our shores. It's just a concern about dealing with Russia. But you know, this also reflects in, in contemporary ways about dealing with China. In many ways, mm-hmm. we see that China and, and Russia threats as linked, that a success for Russia in Europe is a victory for China. It weakens America's allies and support, creates more influence for China, uh, creates doubt about U.S. resolve elsewhere as well. Foreign policy is changing constantly. International relations uh, are changing constantly. Do you still see NATO as a foundational part uh, of the collective security of its members? Absolutely, in a couple of ways. Um, One is, if you look at the U.S. and NATO together, that still economically is the largest economic force in the world. Collectively, it's still the largest military force in the world. Uh, it covers uh, all the vital sea lanes. 
uh, vital industrial partners and bases of the United States. So yeah, and you know, people often talk about well, we need to pivot to the to the to the China threat because China is the the global pacing threat for the United States. But you know, in in some ways, that's like saying, well, we need to you know guard our front door. Well, you can't you don't leave your back door open, your backyard exposed. Um, and uh, the other thing about the China threat is China's global. Much of China's expansion and influence is also trying to undermine our interests and our strategic relationships in, in Europe and other places. So uh, I do think it will stay foundational to the U.S. for for many years uh, to come. I think the debate is not going to be about the U.S. in or out of NATO. I, I honestly, as somebody that's lived in is in Washington, been here for 20 years, listened to the debate for 20 plus years knows all the players talk today. The, the serious discussions in Washington are not about the United States in NATO or out of NATO. I think Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, by and large, there's a consensus that NATO serves U.S. interests and being in NATO uh, is important. The, the real debate is what does the U.S. commitment look like? Uh, and also, what are our expectations of, of what our friends and, and allies, uh, principally in Europe, do? James Carafano with us here on Future of Freedom. The critiques of NATO, or at least the U.S. involvement in NATO, sometimes will center around the fact that our, our membership and our ability to carry the load financially discourages our European allies from spending more or doing more when it comes to their security. Do you think that's true? Has that gotten better in the past few years? Well, this is an extremely important issue. Uh, the United States has carried the lion's share of the load of transatlantic defense, and now uh, that's it's unrealistic to expect the U.S. to do that. Uh, that's not just because of rising threats, because we we do have China in in the Middle East. We have Iran, and we're also concerned about the stability of the Middle East. Um, but it's also if you if you look at the U.S. economy, we now have a record and unprecedented deficit. Uh, and when you look at U.S. military capability, it's easy to say, well, let's do more, you know, and we should defend our interests whether our allies will or not. And that has to be done through peace or strength. Well, every single defense buildup we've ever done is done through deficit spending. Mm-hmm. How do you do deficit spending when we now really have an unsustainable deficit? So even if the United States wanted to do more and is willing to do more and wanted to invest more in industrial-based military kit, there are limits to what we can do. So literally, uh, it is the Europeans do need to do more. And in part, they need to do more, not just for us, but because it's in their vital interest. There's really only two things that can threaten the physical security of Europe, and it's peace and stability. One is Russia, uh, and the other is the spillover problems in the Middle East. Well, collectively, the Europeans don't have enough capacity to deal with either of those problems. So in sense, this is an there is not a conversation about Europe defending itself because there is no there is no European security outside of the context of transatlantic security. But the reality is is Europeans in their own interests uh, do have to do more. And you know some people say, well, if we do less, they'll do more. Mm-hmm. actually we we actually haven't seen that. We've actually seen the opposite. Um, President Trump famously really beat up the Europeans for not doing enough. And in response to that, some countries started to turn around. And, and he did it not by pulling U.S. support out of NATO, but by, by pressing the case and why it was important for Europeans to do more for European defense in their own interest. And, and of course, 
you know, since the uh, war in Ukraine has started, Europeans have um, carried more sh- uh, share of the load. And some countries, not every NATO member, but some countries have increased. So the reality is, is what gets Europeans to spend more on defense is Europeans clearly seeing that in their own interest, they need to spend more on defense. Uh, we can be part of that discussion, helps influence that discussion. But whether we do more or less isn't the operative factor. It's whether the Europeans see that in their own interest why they have to do more. And indeed, what the Europeans, I think, are seeing is if they want the U.S. to be there and present uh, and relevant, they have to they have to set the ground for that. And that does require them to do more. Where has NATO, or when has NATO, where and when has NATO made a tangible difference in international relations? And do you consider Ukraine, this recent Ukraine-Russia war, to be among the the, the wins, the victories for NATO, despite the fact Ukraine is, of course, not a NATO member? Well, I I would say NATO made, NATO, the conventional deterrence in NATO, combined with American strategic deterrence from the Cold War, definitely prevented the outbreak of a major war in Western Europe. Uh, I, I think the Russians would acknowledge that as well. So did NATO make a, an enormous contribution to peace and security in, in Europe during the Cold War? And yes, even when, even when NATO didn't have a lot of military capabilities in the 50s and 60s, it played a significant role. The, you know, post the Cold War, I think, arguably, um, NATO has had challenges focusing on its, its mission, its responsibility, uh, particularly in terms of deterring Russian conventional threat. And I think what the war in Ukraine has demonstrated is that, that that's something that NATO needs to take seriously. I think what is not disputable is this notion that somehow this is just about Ukraine. Russia attacked Ukraine as a precursor to its long-term strategic plan, mm-hmm. which was to reabsorb the post-Soviet states, have dominance over its traditional sphere of influence, see NATO dissolve, see Article 5 go away, and see the United States withdraw from Europe. Um, Ukraine was the first test of that. Now, it's not over. You know, I would say today, because Ukraine remains an independent country and has blocked the advance of the Russians and greatly attrited their conventional forces, so far, uh, that, and that's, that's a win for NATO because it keeps Russia further away and it diminishes their capability. It remains to be seen how the war will play out, whether NATO will continue to benefit from that in the future. Is You know, like most things in war, if the answer is, is everything going my way or not, the answer is no. No war ever, does everybody only get good news, no bad news. Hmm. So so for, for example, the expansion of NATO by adding Finland and probably Sweden that adds 800 miles of front uh, and, and, and some pretty significant military capability to the alliance. That significantly diminishes the notion that um, Russia will be a, a, a real threat to a conventional uh, invasion of Western Europe anytime soon or, or threatening a NATO country. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen a significant depletion of uh, military stocks. We've seen real shortfalls in capability. Um, that demonstrates some weakness on our part. So it's it's a mixed it's a mixed bag. 
James Carafano with us from the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org, as we talk about the United States and NATO's future. If there are conservatives or libertarians who are looking to craft uh, if we call it America first foreign policy or maybe a, just a more non-interventionalist foreign policy, how would you argue that NATO can play a role in that sort of construction? Well, I think you know, it actually fits perfectly into that. First of all, it is non-interventionist because NATO is a defense alliance. It doesn't threaten anybody. The notion that somehow NATO enlargement threatened Russia and caused war, that's nonsensical. Just, there's no historical evidence for that. NATO has deterred Russia. matter of fact, there's proof of that today. Because NATO countries independently are supplying all kinds of material to Ukraine that are that are preventing the Russians from easily conquering Ukraine. If if Russia was not concerned about NATO, they would be attacking Poland and other places where that aid is coming through. They're not. So clearly, NATO deterrence works. So it, it's not interventionist. And when you talk about America First policy, you know, adding stability and peace in important theaters, which puts threats further away from us. That, that is an America first policy. I think the real question is not, because I don't think the argument of pulling out of NATO is compelling, either from a national interest standpoint or a restraint standpoint. Even, even people that believe in restraint as a foreign policy, mm-hmm. very, very few serious people have I talked to ever argue, well, we're better off if we just abandon Europe and, and NATO. I think the question is, what do we do? Now, one of the things you talked about the, the pivot to Asia, well, the real threat is China. So we have to pivot to Asia. Well, first of all, China's a global threat. So pivoting to Asia is like, you know, going going to the bank after the bank robbers have left with the cash. <laughs> I mean, you, you have to confront China globally, um, different in different places, but you, but you can't just ignore every, every China threat in the world and just focus on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific. The other thing is, is what do you mean by a pivot to Asia from a military perspective? Because, again, NATO is primarily a political military alliance. Well, I mean, look at U.S. forces. Seventy percent of the U.S. Navy is in Asia, so we can't pivot the Navy because then we'd have nothing anywhere else in the world. Now mm-hmm. we we do need more naval deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. That can only actually come from building more Navy. Ninety percent of the U.S. Army is permanently stationed in the United States, and that probably makes a lot of sense because you want the Army to be able to go in whatever direction the threat is. So we don't have masses of army in Europe to move anywhere. The Air Force is interesting because it doesn't really matter where the Air Force is stationed. We are one of the few countries that our Air Force is designed to be deployed globally. So actually having it dispersed around the world actually serves our interest because it's harder to attack because it's more dispersed. Also because we can get to places faster. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter where the Air Force is. You can have an air wing in Europe. It's just as likely you could use that air wing in China. against China if you wanted to. The Space Force is in space, so I don't, I don't think that really counts. So, so there's, no, there's no, other than rhetorically, there is no military pivot to, to Asia. The other thing I would say is, is, what do you want from the U.S. in the future? And the answer is not a lot more force structure. We, we don't need a, a lot more American divisions on the front line of NATO. Um, we've, the Russians have been greatly attrited, and actually we've learned a real lesson from the Ukraine war about how to deter Russia, which is demonstrate that the capability to kill everything before it gets close to the border. So the days of fighting the Russian hordes on the border, I think, are over. What we're going to see more of is what's called deep strike. And and that's the capacity to target and hit 
forces before they can actually cross over. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the future of NATO deterrence. Uh, it's not masses of army divisions. It's not masses of U.S. military infrastructure. Uh, it's a different, a different force structure and something I think us and the Europeans are very capable of developing. One final question for James Carafano. Uh, Finland is now a NATO member. Sweden would like to be a NATO member. Uh, the question for NATO and uh, the U.S. as well moving forward is what about Ukraine? Should Ukraine be a member of NATO? Do you think a larger NATO is necessarily a stronger NATO? Well, I mean, we should never give anybody a veto over who joins NATO. It's a voluntary collective security alliance. So I, I think having an open door is important. Um, whether a country qualifies for membership or not, but you could do it on its own merits. I think, for realistically speaking, Ukraine is not going to become a member of NATO while it's actively in a war. Mm-hmm. That's just not. There's just no mechanism for that to happen. Right. If if there was a static front line, you know, then you know, and they agreed they weren't going to try to fight the territory. But that's that's down the road. Deterrence, future deterrence against Russia and Ukraine is going to come from Ukraine's capacity to defend itself uh, against them. And you know, and finally, I would say in 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 saying, well, support for Ukraine and going forward. If you look across the conservative side, I think this is more about frustration with how President Biden has exploited conservative and Republican support for Ukraine. Then it really is an issue about whether U.S. has an. We would we do have an interest in a secure and independent Ukraine. A secure and independent can defend itself actually makes NATO's defense a lot easier. So even from a cost perspective. That's a good deal for us. The, the problem is the Biden administration's exploitation of bipartisan support for doing all kinds of outrageous things, but runaway spending. I mean, people say, well, we spent hundreds of billions of dollars on Ukraine. We spent trillions of useless dollars on all kinds of nutty stuff. That's, and every time there's a support package, there's like you know, 10 cents for Ukraine and then 50 cents for all of Biden's nonsense. So Republicans are frustrated about that. They're frustrated that the president will support one priority, but the border security, which is equally, if not more important to Americans, he refuses to do anything about that. So I think most of the real concern with with Ukraine policy is about poor leadership from the White House, than it is necessarily about would we all like to see a free and independent Ukraine and see Russia fail in in invading the West? I think the answer is yes, we would. James Carafato, senior Uh, Senior Counselor to the President at the Heritage Foundation, E.W. Richardson Fellow there as well. More at heritage.org. James, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you. Now to hear another side of the argument about the future of the United States in NATO, we talk with Ivan Eland. He is Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute and Director of the Institute's Center on Peace and Liberty. You can find more at independent.org. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I know in your past writing, you've described America as an overstretched superpower. What does that phrase mean to you? Well, uh, the U.S. is still the only uh, military power uh, that spends what the next 11 countries do combined. And we have alliances all over the world. We have 800 plus military bases all over the world. And we essentially, whether they don't, the defense establishment, the foreign policy establishment of the United States don't tend to admit this. In fact, they always say, well, we don't want to police the world. But then, of course, uh, with all the alliances all over the world and all the bases, uh, that's what we end up doing. I mean, 
we're we're uh, concerned about the military coups in the Sahel region, which is just south of the Sahara in Africa, and uh, there's really no no vital interest in the United States. This is just one example of why we why we care about that, at least militarily. We can care about the people and you know that they're having problems, they're having coups, etc. And the government can speak on that, but there's no reason for us to be training all these people who end up launching a coup or something against their own country, and uh, or abusing people with their with um, the military forces and the military training that we've given them. I want to ask specifically about about NATO in, in a bit, but but overall, these alliances that we have committed ourselves to, they likely enhance the security of other countries. In your opinion, do these alliances enhance our security, United States security, in any real way? No, I don't think so. Uh, and it's very curious that we've developed this thing after World War II, this Pax Americana, getting all these alliances at the precise moment that we really didn't need them because nuclear weapons were invented in 1945 towards the end of you know, the World War II at the last year. So in the post-war world, uh, we had a weapon that would eventually grow into a, a deterrent that really does not allow for other countries to either invade us or attack us. Now, we can get attacked by terrorist groups that we can't find, as we did on 9-11, but that has nothing to do with alliances. And the alliances, uh, really, uh, you should... Uh, we. Our, our current president, and not not only to be unfair to him, but other presidents have said, well, our alliances make us strong. But alliances are not an end in themselves. Alliances are supposed to enhance your security. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we get dragged into unnecessary wars, as the countries did in World War One, we had all these inter interconnected alliances. And what happened was, uh, a small country in uh, the Balkans attacked, they, well, they assassinated uh, a, a, an official of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and this caused a chain reaction on all the alliances that, that were facing each other. And, of course, we had a worldwide war on our hands over a, a minor assassination in, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So these alliances can drag you into wars, that you don't want to be in. Hmm. And I think, you know, we have to ask ourselves why we pushed NATO. We not only, after the Cold War, when the threat went down, we decided to grab more territory, essentially, by taking in more of these countries in Eastern Europe that had been under the Soviet, you know, tutelage. Uh, but when the Soviet Union fell apart, they wanted to join the West mm -hmm. so, that, so that to protect themselves against the Russians. But you know, small countries, unfortunately, have to live in the shadow of bigger countries like Finland, et cetera. Right. And they're also, a lot of these countries are far forward, meaning that they're right next to or close to these other big powers like China or Russia. And uh, it's very difficult to defend them. Uh, the Baltics are almost impossible to defend um, very very uh, adequately because they're so far away from... from uh, our assets and that sort of thing. So uh, we have to ask ourselves if these, al if these alliances are really necessary for our own security or are they causing blowback? Now, our informal alliances in the Middle East caused 
And, as, you know, that's not saying that Osama bin Laden is not responsible for 9-11 or he's a monster for killing civilians. It just says he was ticked off that we had we were allied with Saudi Arabia, his home country, and uh, the, the holy Muslim sites are in Saudi Arabia. But he was also concerned about other interventions in the U.S. and in the Middle East. Uh, to help these informal allies that we have. We have both formal and informal allies uh, around the world. And so this blowback is just one example of a blowback that can happen when uh, people get ticked off about uh, our interventions. So let me ask specifically more about about NATO. You mentioned Finland. Finland is now in. Sweden is, is close. Uh, Ukraine wants to be in. NATO. Does our participation and membership in NATO actually increase the risk of the United States being drawn into some sort of major military conflict? Certainly, certainly, because Finland has a, you know, I think it's an 800-mile border mm-hmm. with Russia. You know, Baltics are, have even less than that, but they have a border with Russia. And the problem is if those countries have a border dispute, they're going to be emboldened against Russia because because they've got a big, you know, a big organization. And of course, NATO, United States is NATO. We They do not provide security for us. None of these countries do. We provide security for them. And therefore, you can have an accident, a misunderstanding or whatever, or you can, if you let Ukraine in, you have an active war going on. It's really crazy to do that if you want to avoid Russia, avoid with a, a war with a nuclear armed Russia, because uh, and, and Ukraine is very corrupt, and it has a lot of other problems in addition to being at war with another great power. So, uh, you know, letting these countries in, I mean, Finland is, it doesn't have all the problems that Ukraine does, but it ha- it's very far forward, as is Sweden, uh, very hard to defend, like the Baltics, and very sort of remote part of the alliance right next to uh, Russia. So Russia is going to have the local superiority in that uh, that war by far. Should we be reevaluating our NATO commitment? Would you go so far as to say that we should remove ourselves? We should withdraw from NATO? Yeah, I think we could. Uh, I don't just want to pull the rug out from these countries because we have made a commitment in the past, but we could say, you know, in five years, we're going to be out of here. And so you need to start spending more money on your defenses, because what happens in an alliance is a lot of free riders mm-hmm. on the main country, and that's the United States and NATO. So all these countries have underspent, like the German is the richest country in Europe, and its military is pathetic mm-hmm. because they have, they've relied on the United States for their security uh, since 1945. And uh, so these countries have no incentive to increase their own defenses. The EU... Uh, the EU countries have a greater GDP when combined than the United States does. So they're, they're very wealthy countries. And, and the same is true in the Far East with Japan and uh, South Korea and those, those countries there. They're very wealthy, and they should be doing much more for their defense, but they're not going to if we do it for them. Yeah, short, short of withdrawal, is there a way for the United States to encourage European nations or Japan to do more, to spend more, to contribute to their collective defense, say, in, in Western Europe? Well, we've been griping about this since 1945, that they need to spend <laughs> more on the 
but, but like you said, they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. If somebody's paying the rent for you, why why would you pay it, right? Or why why would you do that, right? So the the only thing you can do is harp on them, and they always say, oh, well, we're doing this and that, and we're doing, you know we're combi- co- we're uh, contributing humanitarian aid to these countries, and you're just going well. But that's not, if the war breaks out, humanitarian aid is not really going to fight the battle. Mm-hmm. So they'll stress they do other things, but uh, certainly they have it, with the alliance uh, structure, the incentive structure. You really can't get them to do it because we've been trying to get them to do more for a long time, and the only way you can do it is by saying, "Well, we're going to phase out our umbrella." Uh, you have those countries have nuclear weapons. Uh, Britain and France have nuclear weapons, and so they could form a shield over the rest of the countries uh, if they need the nuclear shield. And they're all wealthy, so they're going to all pool their resources together. Uh, they, you know, compared to Russia, they they have you know a, a GDP that's uh, much greater than Russia's. Mm-hmm. Russia's a shell of what it used to be, and. Uh, you know, they, they can definitely handle Russia. Talking with Ivan Elin from the Independent Institute here on Future of Freedom. Uh, President Biden recently has said that American leadership holds the world together. When we consider our relationship with other countries in NATO and that alliance, are, are there non-military benefits that we should at least consider, be they economics, uh, economic or, or political benefits that we perhaps derive from being a part of NATO? Well, I think, you know, we um, in the past we have drawn some benefits, but the question is, is it really worth the cost? Usually they say, well, our influence abroad will, will decline if we... Uh, we don't have a military replace and that sort of thing. And the, well, you can have it if our economy is better because we're not spending as much overseas and losing as many lives overseas and policing the world. Uh, people will respect us and we'll have influence with our economics or our culture, uh, our trade, whatever. Right. And so it's just how you want to have influence in the world. And of course, influence is a nebulous term. And sometimes I wonder, what does this influence get us? We, we give $4 billion uh, to Israel, but yet we want them to go, move to a counterterrorism strategy rather than a counterinsurgency strategy. So fewer innocent people will get killed in the Gaza war, but they, they don't do it. So... Um, yeah, do, what do we get? And I'm just using Israel as an example. There's other examples where people don't do what we want them to. In fact, you know, and as what we were talking about earlier, the, the Taiwanese for years have invested in the wrong systems. They want glitzy systems uh, like aircraft, uh, you know, F-16s, that mm-hmm. those sorts of aircraft, when they really need to buy sea mines to keep the Chinese out. So they don't, their their defense uh, spending is not only insufficient, it's now uh, uh, allocated, so they, they buy the wrong weapons and stuff. So, plus the countries that we have, and Israel's a good ally, but if your good allies don't do it, then what about your other allies? They, they don't do it either. Saudi Arabia uh, just has been increasing oil prices, mm-hmm. even though Biden was begging them not to. So, that's another example where your allies 
don't necessarily do what you want them to do just because you're protecting them. It would appear that China and, and Russia continue to deepen their partnership and relationship. If this idea of of partnerships and alliances like NATO is not the right answer, how should the United States be preparing for perhaps a deeper China-Russia partnership? Well, first of all, you, you have to stop the, stop the bleeding, as the, the doctor said, or do no harm. And, but NATO expansion has created we the problem with the US is we don't understand that our our own actions have predictable reactions with countries. Now we don't like Vladimir Putin. He's not a nice guy. He's an authoritarian. But part of the reason that he invaded Ukraine was because he wants to keep Ukraine neutral. Because Ukraine has always been a strategic country to Russia. It's not for the United States, but Again, Ukraine is right on their border. They have a lot of cult, deep cultural ties. The Rus, which was the, the colonel of Russia, started in Kiev, not Moscow. So, you know, it's very cultural, economically, industrially uh, tied to the, to the Russians. So pushing NATO eastward, uh, Russia has legitimate security uh, interests, and therefore we're driving them into the Chinese orbit. In fact, China is a much bigger threat, of course, and therefore we probably should be less antagonistic to Russia than we are. If we want to put pull a Nixon in reverse, Nixon went to China to have better, you know, to you know juxtapose it and help have China, you know, as an ally or at least a certain you know, interested party to counter Russia. Well, now the opposite is needed. Russia is the weaker of the two countries, so we need to make have better relations with Russia to pull it away from China. So it's uh, Nixon in reverse, hmm. so to speak. Ivan Eland is senior fellow at the Independent Institute and director of the Institute's Center on Peace and Liberty. You can find more at independent.org. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you. We thank both of our guests for joining us. James Carafato, Senior Counselor to the President at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org for more. And Ivan Eland, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute and Director of the Institute's Center on Peace and Liberty, independent.org. For additional episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or anywhere you find your audio. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.